Would you please pray with me before I begin? Heavenly Father, I pray that I will not preach a good sermon, but a helpful one. And I pray for your help in my preaching. And I pray that you would use your word to bring clarity, conviction, correction, comfort, counsel, and change. And I pray for the unity of the church. Your word reminds us that the, that the unity with others is a good thing and a pleasant thing. And it also reminds us that unity is extremely important because the church is the body of Christ. Help us to recognize the truth of this reality today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So as I, can, as I look out, I can see that all of us got up this morning and wore clothes to church. We all picked out what we wanted to wear. Now, what do your clothes say about you? Some of us are wearing business casual clothes for a more professional look or more preppy look, while others are wearing athletic gear for comfort and maybe less for fitness. We have people who care about specific brands or designers. And there's a running joke at Maranatha that I dressed like an off-duty cop because I liked tactical clothes. As you can see, I've changed gears more recently. But my wife always asks me why I always look like I'm ready to go hiking, even at church. I just care more about functionality over style. And as you can see, what you put on conveys something about yourself. Now, we're not going to be going to discuss fashion and psychology here this morning. And Jesus tells us not to be anxious about clothing and not to worry about what shall we wear. For he reminds us that our Heavenly Father knows that we need them. Clothing is a good thing because it keeps our bodies covered, both for protection and modesty. But much more important than the physical clothes that we wear to church are the spiritual clothes that Paul tells us to put on in Colossians 3, 12-15, which is today's passage Let's turn there together. Colossians 3, 12 to 15. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against uh, another, forgiving each other, as the Lord has forgiven you. So you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. So today we'll be delving into the fourth point in our Members' Covenant series. This point is, we will prayerfully maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And I want us to think and wrestle with this covenant point, 
with today's passage in mind. So my main idea for today is Christians must put on the new self in order to fulfill their calling to maintain the harmony and the unity of the church. Just like the right gear would help us stay dry when hiking in heavy rain or colder climates, the spiritual clothing Paul tells us to put on in this passage will help us weather the storms of this unity in the local church. So my first point is, put off to put on. Now if we take a little... Uh, if, we take a, uh, if we look a little earlier in, the verse, uh, in verse 5 of Colossians 3, Paul tells us to put to death a myriad of things. It says, Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness. And then he goes on into verses 8 through 10 that we must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. He also reminds us, do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after after the image of its creator. So in other words, before we put on something new, we must put off what we had on before. See, you don't put on new clothes on top of previously worn clothes, right? You don't keep adding layers onto yesterday's outfit. So we must completely put off the old self along with its sinful tendencies in order to put on the new self. And Paul literally tells us to kill it off, to put it to death, to bury it. Paul tells us to put them off not only because they are destructive to the individual, but because they can fester the unity of the church. Idolatry, covetousness, anger, slander, and lying are major causes of ruptures in relationships among fellow believers in the local church. Therefore, no matter how we once behaved before Christ, in Christ we are given a new identity. Now think about this. The uh, the history between the Jews and Gentiles is plagued by hundreds of years of animosity towards one another. And in the early church, these two opposing groups were brought together and had fellowship in unity. They were able to set aside the previous friction that existed between them because they were given new identities. They took off their cloaks that identified them as Jew or Gentile, and they put on the garments of Christ. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone, the new has come. Therefore, we are given new identities in Christ. Now, my second point here is that God provides the garments for us, 
And if you look at verse 12, it says, Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved. Now Paul uses the metaphor of taking off and putting on, just like we do with clothing. Because it would have been familiar to the Colossians, since they were a town with a flourishing textile industry. Notice Paul describes believers by three things. He says we are chosen, holy, and beloved. So number one, we are chosen. It doesn't say that we chose God, but that He chose us. While we were still wearing our old garments, conforming to the sinful patterns in our lives, God chose us to Himself and freely gave us new clothes. If you recall, at the Garden of Eden, God made garments of skin for Adam and Eve to cover their physical nakedness and shame after they sinned. And at the cross, God clothes us with Christ's righteousness, not because of our deeds or good works, but in His great wisdom, He chose us. Placing our faith in the cross also makes us holy or set apart. And God separates us from sin, Satan, and the patterns of this world. And lastly, because of this, we are beloved. Now, no other religion has a God that died for his people. And that is God's extent of love for us. His love is evident for us in Jesus' passion and crucifixion. And Paul reminds us in Romans 5 that God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now that we know that God provided the garments for us, uh, the third point is that the layers, of, uh, the layers of clothing a Christian should wear. So now we can go and look at the second, her, uh, verse of, uh, second half of verse 12. And we see that Paul tells us to put on compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Paul gives us imperatives to put on the new self because our identity is no longer based on our old selves. As one person put it, most of us have chosen heaven over hell, but not many of us have chosen heaven over earth. We have a tendency to put on earth on the earthly instead of the heavenly. And Paul gives us a description of what the layers of clothing a heavenly citizen should wear. And these descriptions are a summary of the fruit of the Spirit, which could be found in Galatians 5, to 23. So why don't we take a look at each and every one of them. So number one, compassionate hearts. First, Paul tells us to put on compassionate hearts. The heart means that the inner self uh, means the inner self or the seat of human emotions. It is the emotional center of our souls. Therefore, someone with a compassionate heart should be tender-hearted, not having a closed heart, but an open heart that moves towards others. And it's, it's really easy to move towards others who are very similar to us, is it not? 
It's easier to form friendships with people who are around the same age. Perhaps you gravitate towards people who are in similar life stages, socioeconomic or educational backgrounds as you are. And yes, while investing in people who are similar to you or whom you may naturally be drawn to is a good thing. And you may even gather and have a flourishing relationship uh, and a community that grows in this way. But God is not focusing on that here. A compassionate heart reaches out to those who are different from you. People whom we are not naturally drawn to. People we see as having a barrier to fellowship around them, whether it is due to their politics, culture, or personality. And compassion calls us to engage those who don't look like us. Where the world has created lines of separation, Christ has brought together relationships that are capable of warm friendships through putting on of kindness, humility, meekness, patience, forgiveness, and the peace of Christ. Compassion also means to have mercy, to feel sympathy, and to have pity. It is often the way the Bible describes Christ's compassionate reaction to people and people in need. The Bible speaks of this when Jesus sees his friends weeping at the grave of his friend Lazarus. And because of his compassion, he weeps alongside them. Jesus had compassion when he saw the poor and outcasts on the streets. He touched the sick. He healed them. When others avoided and shunned them. Now it's not very difficult to find someone who is suffering on a typical Sunday morning here at Maranatha. Those who are suffering with pain and sickness, infertility and miscarriage, broken hearts and sorrow, as well as hopelessness and depression. And as members, we are called to walk with them, to pray for them, to sit down beside them and listen to them. And not just within the household of faith, but also to the outside, to, to outside the church family as well. Now John, Jesus' beloved disciple, speaks to us about compassion in 1 John 3.17. It says, If anyone has material possessions and sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? Now, this may look different depending on the situation or circumstance, but some ways I've seen this happen here at Maranatha is by way of providing someone with groceries, a ride to church, and childcare for moms while they run errands or attend the Bible study. And I've seen meals provided to families who have, had just, who have just had a child or are in a time of crisis and emergency. And I've seen this by people and members providing uh, a place to stay, a job, and visiting those who are sick and dying in the hospital. The Bible is clear that compassion is an attribute of God. 
God is called the Father of mercies or compassion in 2 Corinthians 1.3. And as the saying goes, like father, like son, or like children. When we show compassion to those in need, we display Christ's compelling love and character. Now the next thing that Paul mentions is kindness. And with kindness, we are to be kind in what we say. We need to use our words to build each other up and not break each other down. Kindness is staying a few minutes after service to catch up, to share a word of encouragement to a brother or sister. Kindness is shooting a text or a simple email to a deacon to express how much you appreciate them and what they do. People who are kind are not rude, not overbearing, and not mean. And kindness is what allows you to put bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander, along with all malice, to death before it destroys the local church. Now Jesus speaks about kindness in Luke 6.35 this way, But love your enemies and do good, and lend expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High. For he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. See, in a culture of entitlement and self-promotion, we've forgotten what it means to be kind, to exist for the benefit of others. Kind people are helpful to others, expecting nothing in return. Kind people are generous like our Heavenly Father. Kindness is the meat on the bones of compassion. And instead of just telling a brother that you would pray for their debt, kindness is generously giving them some money to to cover some of that debt, or perhaps sitting down with them to work through it. Kindness could also mean taking out someone to dinner for their birthday to enjoy their company as a friend. Kindness is extending an invitation to an outsider and making them feel welcome. Kindness is making a tangible difference in someone's life. Now the next virtue he tells us to put on is humility. And humility is rarely endorsed as a virtue one ought to strive for in worldly circles. In previous, in ancient and current societies, modern societies now, they often paint humility as a sign of of weakness. It's lumped together with servitude and cowardice or plain right stupidity. However, in the life of a disciple of Christ, this is not to be so. Just like Jesus was, we are to be gentle and lowly in heart and not mean-spirited. Perhaps one of the easiest pitfalls of demonstrating humility is by doing so with a heart full of pride. And we may try to give the impression of humility, we may deceive others, but we are certainly not deceiving God. Therefore, practice humility. Practicing humility requires us to put pride to death. Humility calls you to think less of yourself. And I would like to make the distinction that it doesn't mean 
thinking less of yourself in terms of human value and worth. No, we are all made in the image of God, and thus each and every human life is precious and valuable. But it does mean thinking less of yourself in terms of the amount of time spent thinking about yourself. It's think less of yourself and more of others. It's putting on the garments of compassion and kindness mentioned before and putting yourself before, putting others before yourself by loving your neighbors and being moved to help those in need. Now, Jesus proved to be the best model for us in that he entered our world not to be served, but to serve and to be humble and to humble himself as a servant, even to death on the cross. He put aside any selfish ambition and he submitted himself wholeheartedly to his Father and his Word. When we put on humility, it produces in us godliness, contentment, and security. Now the Word of God also gives us a warning in 1 Peter 5.5 5 about pride. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If we try to exalt ourselves to positions in which God has not appointed us, God in His grace and for our goodness will humble us. We can see humility played out in the life of Paul throughout his life. He mentioned how he is the least of all the apostles in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9, in AD uh, AD 55. Then in AD 60, all of the saints in Ephesians 3, 8. And then in AD 62, all of the sinners. So he goes from all of the apostles, all of the saints, to all of the sinners in 1 Timothy 1, 15. One author put it this way about uh, Christian maturity. Christian maturity is downward. It is growing not less aware of yourself or less aware of your unworthiness, but more. Next, we move on to gentleness. Now, gentleness or meekness does not equate to weakness, but rather polite and restrained behavior towards others. One author put it this way when describing gentleness as strength brought under control with a willingness to suffer injury rather than inflict it. This is contrary to being angry or having a desire for revenge and exaggerating one's reputation and worth. And the Bible speaks of Moses as being very gentle in Numbers 12.3. When he was faced with undeserved criticism, Moses did not give himself to rage, but rather prayed to God for those who offended him. Gentleness also means submitting to and having a gentle attitude towards God because he knows all things. Picture God challenging Job when he says, Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? In our flesh, we tend to think, that we know what's best for ourselves and we know what's best for others and even go easy on people 
When they try to justify something, God has called a sin. However, God is more concerned about our spiritual growth than our comfort, and he knows what we need better than we do. So gentleness is also required when speaking the truth to someone when they continue to sin. See, the Bible calls us to confront a brother or sister in line with what Scripture says, and to be gentle, loving, encouraging, and also clear about God's call upon our lives to live a holy and God-honoring life. The next thing we see here is patience. Patience or long-suffering or bearing with one another is the, is the fifth garment we are told to put on. And the scriptures refer to, uh, refer to patience with how we respond to people and not circumstances. And if God is calling us to be long-suffering here, it means that he will send people into our lives that will require us to suffer long. There will likely be difficult people God sends to us who will require us to put up with them for a very long time. Similarly, it is likely that we may require others to put up with us as we are in the process of putting off and putting on. A difficult person is one who does not have the traits Paul tells us to put on in today's message. They may lack compassion towards others, resulting in selfishness. They may lack gentleness and be outright rude. A lack of kindness causes them to be inconsiderate, and the absence of humility make them, may make them argumentative by thinking that they are always right or that their way is the best way. These people know how to push the right buttons and stir up trouble. But walking alongside these types of people will require patience, grace, and love. And it will require us to respond like Jesus did. Never exhibiting harsh dominance or dismissive pride, but rather authority under control. Jesus rebuked when it was needed, but he also responded to the Pharisees by being silent. Sometimes he asked questions, other times he referred back to scripture, and, and sometimes he even told parables. When it comes to difficult people, we must never respond in the flesh, or as Peter says, repay evil with evil or insult with insult. Now the next thing that I wanted to go over is forgiveness. And like I said earlier, the Lord will require us to be patient with one another. We are called to patiently endure provocation, to overlook an insult, or maintain self-control when we get frustrated. However, sometimes others may relapse in their fight with the sin and respond in an ungodly way, or rather non-believers may sin against us that we may take offense. When there is an offense, the right response should be forgiveness. Forgiveness is an act of grace that is freely given and totally undeserved. Paul knows that when we are called to this type of community with one another, 
there will be moments when we'll have a cause for complaint against someone else. When that, occur, uh, when that occurs, Paul encourages us to extend forgiveness. Paul is prescribing something that Christ himself practiced and taught. In Matthew 18, 21 to 22, Jesus answers Peter's question, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? And Jesus responds by saying, I do not say to you seven times, but 77 times. And, G- and G- Jesus isn't giving us an exact number here, but rather the principle to continue to forgive much because God has forgiven much. Conversely, when we refuse to forgive someone, we will give ourselves to resentment, bitterness, and anger. Bitterness is the cancer of the soul. One author put it this way. Forgiveness is an action based on choice and not on emotion. Not every relationship that has caused us hurt will be restored. But every hurtful relationship needs forgiveness. The person who fails to forgive not only carries an unnecessary reminder of his hurt, but also falls short of God's command. It hurts to hurt. We need to ask ourselves if we are letting the pain of yesterday's hurt stand in the way of letting God heal us today. He is the loving physician who is ready to heal. Are you willing to be his patient? When it comes to the economy of grace, forgiveness must be the currency which is freely exchanged among those who have been brought together by God's grace. Without it, the church will be left on life support, struggling to survive. That means that the pastors and the leaders must be willing to forgive the congregation, and the congregation must be willing to forgive the pastors and leaders. Believers must be willing to forgive each other. We must be willing to forgive non-believers. When we wrong each other, we shouldn't move away from each other or think of ways to avoid the situation. We should move towards each other and point to the costly forgiveness we have received in Christ. The willingness to forgive is required for unity in the local church. Now next, Paul mentions how the most crucial of all these things is love. And he gets to the garments Christians are to put on top of all the others. He says that love perfectly binds together all virtues. And this is something that the Bible actually constantly reminds us of. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 16, 14, to let all that you do be done in love. 1 Corinthians 12 and 13 says, If I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. 
If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. In other words, without love, the other virtues will cease to have any value. Without love, none of the other virtues will be genuine. Without love, all the others Virtues fall short of the mark. This love will come at a cost. It may sometimes result in heartache. Sometimes it will take a lot of energy. However, what Paul is getting at here is that when we put on the new self in the context of community, that community will be brought to perfection when the virtues are knit together in love. Now, next thing uh, Paul talks about here um, is let the peace of Christ sit as an umpire in your hearts. So Paul knows that peace in the church never comes naturally. So it it demands constant attention and effort. Fighting and bickering in the church is detrimental to unity. And... uh, In our covenant, it says that we will prayerfully maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. In verse 15, Paul says, Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you are called in one body. Now, the apostle uses the word rule to convey that the peace of Christ should act as umpire when anger, envy, and other passions arise, and that peace should restrain those things. Peace should be something that regulates our actions and also makes the call when we have a disagreement about something. Paul says that the peace of Christ is something that has called us into one body. We are no longer strangers, but a family. And as a family in Christ, Christians should naturally live at peace with each other. To put it in sports terms, as some of you follow sports, we all wear the same jerseys. We are all striving for the same goal. We shouldn't be competing against one another. And lastly, Paul says to be thankful. He ends the verse here with a call to be thankful. Ultimately, Christians are all recipients of God's grace. And as people who have not deserved this grace, we, should, we too should extend grace, love, and forgiveness to one another. In conclusion, unity in the church doesn't just happen. It requires a lot of work and effort. Why? Well, because the church is made up of sinners who sin against each other. Sinners who cause divisions, fights over petty things and promote their own agendas and campaigns over the good of the church. But just like Paul challenged the Colossians, I challenge us to put off our earthly clothes and put on our heavenly garments and fulfill our call to maintain the unity of the church. I challenge us to refrain from gossiping and slandering one another, to forgive each other quickly and graciously, 
to surrender our preferences and opinions for the good of others, to be careful how we speak about each other's character and reputation in private, and to be mindful of the way we speak publicly in large groups. And finally, to pray for one another and put on love at all times. Would you bow your head with me? Oh Lord, I pray that you would bring fruit from what was taught here. I pray for the church, the pastors, and for you to work in our lives. Please humble us as we seek unity as a church. And I ask for your help for us to be doers of the words and not just hearers of the words. Amen.